Okie doke. All right. You want to go ahead and read the thing? I do. On August 13th, 1979, the late night NBC talk show, The Tomorrow Show, hosted by Tom Snyder, brought on a pair of minor rock and roll celebrities for interviews. One was the 32-year-old singer Meatloaf, there to promote his album Bat Out of Hell and upcoming tour. The other guest, identified as Chicago rock and roll disc jockey Steve Dahl, wore a green army jacket covered in pins and decorations, buttoned nearly to his chin, and a helmet covered in camouflage fabric. His face was round and dimpled, his haircut was shaggy, and his eyes were hidden behind enormous glasses. From the beginning of the interview, he talked ceaselessly, never misspeaking or running out of things to say. He claimed his birth name was Spam and related to Meatloaf, who laughed somewhat uncomfortably. He handed his helmet to Meatloaf to try on, which didn't fit. He brought out a set of records to break over his head, eliciting another uncomfortable laugh from Meatloaf, who hastily stated that he liked the Bee Gees. At the end of the program, he sucked on some helium and sang a few lines of How Deep Is Your Love in a quavery falsetto. When Tom Snyder interrupted to ask semi-seriously, Steve, why do you hate disco? Steve Dahl answered without pausing to think, well, Tom, I can't find a three-piece suit that fits me off the rack and hangs well, and you've got to have one of those. Steve was referring, of course, to the look popularized by John Travolta in the previous year's hit movie, Saturday Night Fever. In that movie, Travolta's character, Tony, ruled the dance floor through a combination of slick moves and impeccable style to the tune of a Grammy-winning disco soundtrack that was still on the Hot 100 charts at the time of Steve Dahl's Tomorrow Show interview. But it wouldn't be for much longer. Because three weeks earlier, Steve Dahl, in his jokey army outfit, had designed and incited a riot on a Chicago baseball field one that had destroyed thousands of records, ripped up the baseball diamond, and created a ludicrous amount of danger to a stadium packed with baseball and rock and roll fans. That riot marked a vicious backlash against disco, one that arguably caused the decline of the genre, and remains today one of the most curious events in the histories of baseball, the music industry, and the Chicago rock and roll scene. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of Disco Demolition Night. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Promotions Manager to the Relative Disasters Baseball League Farm Team Division. And I'm her brother Greg, Tastefulness Advisor to Relative Disasters Radio, WRDR 1110 FM, the voice of calamity. Oh, you did that very nicely. I have a, I have a perfect have face Have you considered for getting into radio? <laughs> Our main sources for this episode are... <laughs> Steve Dahl. Uh, there is a video called Disco Demolition Night 25th Anniversary on YouTube. Okay. That is excellent. It's about an hour long. It gets into all the nitty gritty. Okay. Um, there are a couple of Medium articles and Guardian articles that were really interesting for further context. Uh, the article, Disco Demolition Night was not racist, not anti-gay, and Disco Demolition Night, the night they tried to crush black music. Yeah. Thanks also to our listener, Lynn, who we should probably just hire. She is amazing <laughs> at finding these. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Uh, do you know that 
Lord Tennyson poem where he says, in spring, a young man's fancy turns lightly yeah. to thoughts of love. Okay, well, in spring, my fancy turns to thoughts of Eurovision. Okay, yep. So that's what I was thinking about when I was researching this article. And there are some interesting parallels. I, are you a rock music fan or a pop music fan or a disco fan? I am kind of a fan of music in general. I just really enjoy when human beings create auditory soundscapes for other human beings. It's nice, isn't it? I, I think do it's like one of the it. nicer things we do as humans. I've found, I found music from all genres that I can enjoy. That's very democratic of you. Well, uh, we were probably, you can probably tell from our voices, we were raised on a steady diet of NPR. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but our father absolutely refused to turn on the pop station oh, yeah. when we were growing up. He would oh, only yeah. listen to it if we thought that school might be canceled. Yep. Well, and uh, all we ever heard at home was, these guys don't know good music. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Poor dad. All right. So disco is a genre of music that was developed in the very late 1960s through the 70s with a huge bump in the music charts at the yep. end of the 1970s. If you were trying to describe it to someone who's never heard it, yeah, what do you think you would say about um, disco? If I had to describe disco, I would say it's what happens when you take soul and funk and you speed it up a little bit. Right. I think the big thing that sets disco apart from rock is that it's made to be danced to. Like yes. rock music is great to rock out to, but yeah. it's not good dance music. Disco is dance music, absolutely. Disco is like the first kind of club music. You've got in, you've in got a drum kit, you've got a heavy bass line, you've usually got horns right. in there. Yeah. yeah, it's also really reliant on strings and then yes. they tend to have really like elaborate harmonies going over the top. Yep. Yep. And there's a there's a lot of like there's a lot of orchestration that goes on with it. Usually done on synthesizers, but you'll have like a horn section and mm -hmm. a string section, and it'll have like a, uh, some some polyrhythms that are really really intricate. Um, and there's an awful lot of syncopation using right. unexpected beats to really get your your dance across and and it's it's you're right though it's made to be danced to this is yeah like, like there's no other sit purpose. down and listen to it music this is get up well that's not stupid. true you can do cpr to stay in alive that's true that's very so true I guess, I guess that one particular song has another use but all other disco music is just made to be danced to uh so like you mentioned a lot of 20th century american music springs directly from african-american artists and producers and the first like big artists to do disco songs were in the late 60s early 70s uh and those were people like gloria gaynor yeah. donna summer barry white and then by the end of the 70s white artists and non-americans are also recording huge disco hits yeah so that's where the bgs and abba yeah 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 so the disco scene because there's also this huge component that it's made to be danced to socially. So one of the huge disco hits and something we've all listened to hundreds of times. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give you an example. It's YMCA by the Village People. Oh, yeah. You know that song, right? Yep. Giant LGBTQ uh, anthem. Yeah. Every place I read about it called it a gay anthem. So yeah. let's call it that. It's also one of the greatest dance songs of all time. Okay, so YMCA does not like 
come forth out of nowhere. Right. This particular moment in history, we're following a long history of repression and stigmatization in the United States uh, for gay Americans. And by the end of the 70s, they had just had enough. You know, the gay liberation movement was picking up steam throughout the 1970s. Yep. Uh, following the Stonewall Riot in 1969. Yeah. And nightclubs and especially discotheques were safe spaces. Yeah. Where people could express themselves, which of course led to fabulous fashions, dance yep. moves, great hair. And this kind of like, I don't know, it's like an unapologetic self-expression. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm here to dance. You don't have to have a partner to dance. So you can just right. like go out and bust a move. You know, where else has disco? Where is that? a bad segue, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's a great segue, do it. Uh, the movies. In 1977, the movies Saturday Night Fever is a huge hit. Yeah. Um, and disco had been popular since the 60s, but when that movie came out, it just, like, exploded. There had been disco hits before, but after 1977, a huge part of the music charts, you know, the most popular songs on the radio, mm-hmm. those are disco. Sure. Uh, along with the music... Other parts of the disco lifestyle become trendy. I'm thinking like roller skates, feathery yep. hair, outrageous makeup. <laughs> you know, disco. When you think 70s fashion. <clears throat> the thing about disco is that it's like joyful and sexy and fun. So young, sexy, fun people are just tremendously attracted to it. Sure. So very quickly over the few years, like 1977 to 1980, it becomes popular to the point where nightclubs are turning into... Discotheques. Yeah. And Um, as we all know, whenever anything becomes that culturally popular. (laughs) But it's not just nightclubs, right? Like big rock stars like Rod Stewart are putting out disco songs. Yep. His big hit was like, do you think I'm sexy? Yeah. God, it's it's not a very good song. That is an embarrassing song. (laughs) I'm sorry. But he really commits. Yes. I mean. It is a disco song. And Bowie had some, some disco elements in his music sure. and, and people would be like oh Bowie's selling out and he's like no nah, I'm just making fun music um, I mean not much to argue with there no the other thing that's happening is that major radio stations are completely changing format yes so changing a, format. a rock station would change overnight to a disco station yep as with all cultural changes the explosion of disco made some people very very uncomfortable yeah yeah with disco Particularly with the association with black and Latino and gay performers and dancers. Yep. A lot of rock and roll fans feel like they have to choose between disco and rock. Yeah. And they, you know, they feel excluded. It's yep. not necessarily a musical exclusion. Plenty of people both listen you know, to love both. Sure. Both genres. Yeah. Yeah. But Steve Dahl talks a lot about the disco lifestyle, and I kind yeah. of understand where he's coming from. It's just there is more of a commitment to your style if you want to fit in at a disco club. If you want to go out to a nightclub playing rock and roll or you want to go see a rock concert, you don't necessarily have to dress up to fit in. Right, exactly. Yeah. You have to look a certain way, but there's not a lot of effort involved. Sure. Rock and roll is too cool for... A dress code. Styling. (laughs) (laughs) A white three-piece suit. Yeah. Uh, but going out to the discotheque, on the other hand, if you want to fit in, you need to learn some dance moves. You have to wear something nice. You have to groom. Yeah. Maybe put on a little glitter. <laughs> in other words, stuff that dudes in the 70s weren't super comfortable doing. 
Yeah, I think for a lot of young, straight American men in the late 70s, these are things they associate with a Being loss of masculinity. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And it goes it goes really deep. It goes like right to the core of their identities. Sure. And so and this like overnight popularity of disco becomes almost like a threat to their self-perception. Yeah. And particularly in towards the late 70s when the punk movement really started to take hold because the punk movie movement was, you know, hostile to everything that wasn't punk. Everything. Yeah. And and there were there were a lot of you know, I mean, a lot of musicians made songs that made fun of disco. Um, one of my favorites, of course, is uh, Frank Zappa's Dancing Fool, which is hilarious whether you like disco or not. Um, I mean, the thing is, disco takes itself very seriously. Disco so it's does right take it to be made it's fun of. Too seriously, exactly. If you um, compare rock and roll with yeah. disco, like that's the big thing. Disco it's, is it, earnest it, in a way that no other genre is. Yeah, <laughs> earnest. That's a good way to put it. It's very earnest. I think there's room for disco and rock. (laughs) (laughs) But when more and more, especially young, like you said, young straight men started to feel threatened by that disco mentality, or as Steve Dahl put it, the disco lifestyle, Mm -hmm. it really set the stage for um, a lot of violence to break out. Yeah, it does. You do start to develop an anger when you feel othered. Yes. And I think that's a big part of what happens here. And disco is just such an easy target. It know? really is. It, yeah. Yeah. It's silly it's music. It's adorable. It but is it's... silly music. Yeah. <laughs> there are some disco songs that are truly the most ridiculous things I've uh, ever uh, heard. Uh, uh, most of them. Most of them. Uh, yes. <laughs> but these are, these are broad strokes, but this is like roughly yeah. what's going on. Sure. Okay. So I mentioned that a lot of radio stations were changing format to keep up with the times. One radio station that goes from rock to disco literally overnight at the end of 1978 is WDAI in Chicago. Yep. And one of the disc jockeys who gets fired on Christmas Eve, just to make it a little worse, is a 24-year-old newly married, newly hired California transplant, Steve Dahl. Yes. Just a quick background on Steve Dahl. He is an He's interesting an interesting person. guy. He's a really yeah. interesting guy. So he's a high school dropout who loves to rock. Mm-hmm. And he spent the past few years doing grunt jobs around the radio industry to try and get into a position where he's finally allowed to play rock music all day and talk. Yeah. Because his other big love is talking. Yes. And he's very good at it. <laughs> yeah. He's just, he he's has a real natural talker. talent for it. He's one of those yep. people who was just born to talk on the radio. He talks seamlessly. Yeah. Uh, he never runs out of things to say. He's sometimes very funny. He's sometimes pretty offensive. Eh. Uh, and he's also a musician. So rock music is really the core of his identity. So getting this job and then losing it a couple months later must have felt absolutely terrible. And especially losing it because it was being taken away from him by a musical genre he had no interest or, you know, uh, respect for. <laughs> right. You've got to remember, like, as we're going to talk about this, Steve Dahl has a personal reason to hate disco. Mm-hmm. That's where this all comes from. Sure. So he gets fired Christmas Eve, 1978. He bounces right back. He gets a job as a DJ at a competing radio station, also yep. in Chicago, WLUP, The Loop. <laughs> I thought that was a very clever name for a radio station. Oh, most of them have some pretty good, uh, some pretty good. Yeah. Uh, he's hired to do a rock show, 
And every day or so, he'll freak out his listeners by playing half a disco song. Yeah. And then he'll, like, scratch the needle off the record and play an explosion sound effect. <laughs> Childish does not begin to just... He does this every day. <laughs> Sometimes multiple times per this day. Doesn't, this doesn't bore him. <laughs> and when he talks between songs, he talks relentlessly about disco. Not about how much he hates it, but about how much it sucks. Yes. And this is a time when sucks is like the strongest word you can say on the radio without yep. getting censored. And and this gave rise to the famous disco sucks slogan. Right. So he like rags on his former station, uh, which changed its name to Disco D-A-I. He calls yep. it Disco D-I-E. <laughs> hey, you know, you got a lot of airtime to fill. Right. And he's not making fun of disco music in particular. He's really no. making fun of the disco lifestyle. As he puts it. As yeah. he calls it. Yeah. Um, and when he is asked to elaborate on that, he talks about the dancing, the blow dried hair, the yep. insane costumes are expected to come up with. Yep. He does this shtick so, he does this wholeheartedly, basically. Yeah. He it's... even goes as far as to record a parody version of Rod Stewart's disco hit. Do you think I'm sexy? Yes. Do you think I'm disco? Yep. Uh, he does it with his band Teenage Radiation. He plays it on the air. It actually does get onto the music chart. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like with, with many parodies, if you don't, uh, if you don't make it its own thing and, and very clever. Uh, I will say it was made for a specific audience it and, and it really it did. nailed that audience. Exactly. <laughs> because a couple of months, because within a couple of months of starting at The Loop, he has yep. a fan club. Yes. So the other thing I want to tell you about Steve Dahl is that he has a real flair for the ridiculous. Yeah. Right. He names the fan club Insane Coho Lips. Yep. Uh, would you like to know why? <laughs> I would love to know why. <laughs> so, I knew why. I knew that that he'd named them that. I did not come across anything on why. Okay, so I listened to a lot of interviews with him, and he does cover this in one. Let me see if I can remember it. Okay. So there's a Chicago street gang called the Insane Unknowns. Okay. That's where he gets the insane from. He loves okay. coho salmon, so that's where the coho comes from. Okay. And then lips comes from the Rolling Stones, the greatest oh, okay. rockers of all okay. time. But cool, cool, he cool. refers to it as an anti-disco army. Yes. So if you join the fan club, they send you a little membership card with all the lists with a list of all the reasons why disco sucks. It's like this little <laughs> cardboard card you can keep in your wallet. Oh my God. What? Why not? Uh, after the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack wins Best Album at the Grammy Awards in February of 1979. Yeah. And given the massive shift in the radio industry, it seems to Chicago rock fans like a key part of their identity as rockers is kind of like under attack sure. by this new style. Given this massive shift, it seemed like disco was just going to swallow up the music industry and nobody would be making any more rock and roll. And from sure. now on, if you wanted to have any kind of a social life, you were going to have to do all the disco things like blow dry your hair, yeah, dress to the absolute nines, and dance like John Travolta. Yeah. Steve Dahl has this really like deeply, genuinely angry anti-disco rhetoric. And it gets more and more over the top during the spring of 1979. Yep. He starts making appearances in an army outfit. Yeah. Remember? Because he's the head of the anti-disco army. Yep. Uh, and his big thing is smashing disco records over his helmet. Yes. It's just theatrical, ridiculous. It's probably therapeutic for him. Uh, uh, sure. And also pretty fun for his fans. 
this brings us naturally to baseball. As Disco Fever gets going, the Chicago White Sox are having a rough year. Yeah. That's the local baseball team. Yep. They've had a rough couple of years, actually. Uh, so attendance is down. They almost get sold to two other cities, which is, I guess, the worst thing that could happen to you if you're a baseball team. It's not great, no. Bill Veck, the team's owner, is trying to renew some interest with promotions. And like Steve Dahl, Bill Veck also has a flair for the theatrical. Okay. He's not as over the top. Like, he'll hire dancers and do a performance Or, like, he just has weird events. Like, he opened up a picnic area so you could have a hot dog and watch the game. (laughs) He has a promotion where you get your hair cut in the outfield for free. Okay, okay. It's that kind of thing. It's just, like, gimmicky, fun, weird stuff. He did have a disco night promotion in 1977. Yes, in 1977. It goes so well that he decides to sponsor an anti-disco night in 1979. And his son, who is, like, exactly the right age to be managing this yeah, yeah. <laughs> he decides what they're gonna do is get the head of the anti-disco army the chief insane coho lip uh steve doll to run things what could possibly go wrong i had thought the doll came to them they went to doll it's unclear okay so it sounds like they knew his radio show like they were listeners of the radio show sure. and the well, sun especially after they did the Disco night yeah. in the 70s. I guess Mike Veck was like, he was in charge of promotions and he was just relentlessly bugging his father to do. Do something with Steve Dahl. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So on the night of July 12th, 1979, the Detroit Tigers were in Chicago to play a doubleheader yep. against the Chicago White Sox. Bill Veck had already scheduled a promotion intended to get teenagers to buy tickets So he had already committed to some rock bottom pricing just to get more people in the stands. At the time, like during this season, they're averaging less than 10,000 tickets per game in Comiskey Park, which is their home field. Yep. Comiskey Park is huge. It can seat. Okay, so we're going to really ballpark some numbers here. Excuse (laughs) my my pun. I was waiting to do that. Did you enjoy that? Um, because nobody's really sure how many people were there, right, how many right, people right. were really there because, well, you'll see why. Yeah. <laughs> so the concept for anti-disco night was if you bring your a disco record, you get in for a 98 cent ticket. Yeah. Uh, the promotion was that the records would be collected in this giant wooden crate. It's like the size of a dumpster. Yep. And between games, Steve Dahl would blow them up. In the middle of center field. So the record station and sorry, the radio station and the White Sox promotion team thought this would bring in about five or ten thousand extra baseball fans, which is about what the other promotional events did. Sure. So they were predicting that people who already liked baseball and maybe were also rock fans would be tempted by this ticket price to come in. Yeah. Ninety eight cents. Go see a game. That's not bad. They already had a pyrotechnics guy to do the actual blowing up mm-hmm. because the White Sox had an exploding scoreboard. Yes. With fireworks. That was a big idea of Bill Vex. Yeah. Those were cool. It's very cheerful. Have yep. you seen, did you see video of that? Um, I, I have actually seen the, in, uh, in 1990, I got to see the Comiskey Park um, before it was demolished and, uh, and the, uh, the outfield has that big scoreboard and yeah, yeah, if something cool happens, they'll set off fireworks behind it. And it was neat. That's super cool. Uh, so, you know, to them, this was just like an average promotional game yeah. and it must've seemed, I don't know, business as usual. 
like sure. right up until they opened the doors on the yeah. late afternoon of July 12th. So the most obvious problem was that too many people wanted to come. Yep. Right? The 10,000 people who were there to see the White Sox play, the Tigers came. But for every baseball fan, there were like five members (laughs) of the anti-disco army. Yep. And they were just pouring into the stadium to the point where there were concerns about the upper balcony collapsing. Jeez. They brought some banners. They were screaming and hollering. Like, they weren't there to watch baseball. They were there to have a good time. Yeah. And if you Which see, we all should aspire to. Uh, I agree. And if you see the uh, the photos from this night, there is a very famous photograph with a huge handmade banner hanging from the bleacher seats that says "Disco sucks." It's hanging from the upper balcony, so in yeah. every single shot of the baseball game, it's like yeah. right behind home plate. <laughs> and it's huge. It's, it's enormous. Really yeah. big. And yeah. By the f- time the first game gets going. 47,000 tickets have been sold. Okay. And all the seats are full, plus either hundreds or thousands more people are standing in the aisles. Okay. Outside, another at least 20,000 fans are trying to get in. Jeez. They really oversold this. Okay. Because this area is so unruly, this gate, like ticket gate area, management sends their entire security detail, which are 12 off-duty policemen, 12 policemen to deal with... 20,000 people is not enough. No, no, that's a bad ratio. And people start climbing over the walls to get into the stadium. Uh, people who are in the stadium start lifting up their friends from yep. below. Yep. Um, and then there are all these like little gates and entryways that people just jump. Kind of snuck in. Yep. Yeah, it's rock and roll. They're rock and rollers. Yeah, exactly. You want to um, get into the it, show, you get into the show. By some estimates, when the game starts, there are 100,000 people in the stadium and in the what? street outside trying to get in. So I... in total, 100,000 people just crammed into this area. Uh, so people kind of settle down when the game gets going. Sure. Detroit, which is having a moderately better year than the White Sox, they win the game 4-1. Yep. 4-1, baby. Go Tigers. This is not an easy feat, because over the course of the game, conditions on the field are getting a little dicey. Yeah. Do you remember I said you could get in for a dollar if you brought a record? The ticket person would sell you a ticket, take your record, and throw it in the crate. This giant wooden crate the size of a dumpster. Sure. It was full by the time half of the discount tickets were sold. Yeah. So they were selling tickets to people who were going in, and they still had records. And, like they would uh, hold on to their disco yeah. album yep. and hit the stands. And some of them, when they get bored with the baseball, start throwing them at the ball game like frisbees. Uh huh. Which sounds kind of funny, but it's really not. No, it's these incredibly are, dangerous. <laughs> these are 12 inch heavy, sharp edged vinyl yep. records. So yep. if you th- if you throw them from the upper balcony with just the right wind, with just the right amount of force, they absolutely yeah. have the potential to seriously injure or kill someone. Can I can I share a two-second sidebar about uh, the designated hitter for the Tigers that year, Rusty Staub? Sure. Okay. So Rusty Staub was the DH for the Tigers, and he, um, when they started to throw the records... He could see the records coming through the air and land like sticking out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And he told his teammates to wear their batting helmets when they were out in the field. Um, his his quote is, quote, it wasn't just one. It was many. Oh, God almighty. I've never seen anything so dangerous in my life. End quote. 
So the White Sox pitcher, Ed Farmer, also has a near miss with a record almost hitting him as he's winding up on the pitcher's mound. Oh, jeez. And when he picks it up out of the grass, he sees, sorry, out of the ground, he yep. sees it's a Beach Boys single, fun, fun, fun. Uh-huh. Uh, so in the documentary, <laughs> he tells this story and then he looks right into the camera and says, and that isn't even a disco record. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> Uh, so miraculously, there are no injuries, yeah. but you better believe that at the minute the game is over, both teams are dashing off the field into their dugouts. Yeah, actually, they go into the dugout first. And then when things get going, they go all the way back to the clubhouse. Thank you very much. And lock the door. Good for them. Uh, at 830, the time has come for Steve Dahl's event. OK, now you have to picture this. I'm going to paint you a picture here. Yep. Steve Dahl rolls onto the field in the back of a military-style Jeep, okay. accompanied by a model from the radio station who, I just want to point out, has perfect makeup and beautiful blonde feathery hair. She is totally ready for the disco. Okay. He's waving to the crowd. He's giving people salutes. Yep. And he's wearing this army jacket with pins and decorations. I sure. think he says in one interview he's got fishing lures like pinned on mm-hmm. his chest. And he's got what looks like a floral sports shirt underneath. That would not surprise me. He's got a camouflage helmet. He has these huge 70s style aviator glasses with transitional lenses, Greg, if you can Kay. just picture that. I can picture that. <laughs> I think it's important to point out that visually, there's just absolutely nothing serious about his appearance. No, he no, looks no, no. like exactly what he is, which is a chubby, goofy. He's being a goofy. Very young, possibly drunk, you know, sure. guy out to have some laughs and blow some stuff up. Yeah. So the minute Steve Dahl appears, the crowd goes wild. He takes a lap around the field in the Jeep and stops in the center field. He does this little speech where he's screaming into the microphone. It's really painful to listen to. Yeah. And it's, it's a completely forgettable speech. He's just, like, screaming, we're rock and rollers. We will resist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, over and over again, disco sucks. <laughs> and then he does the countdown to the explosion. Yep. Now, the pyrotechnics guy really brought his A-game to the explosion. When the crate ignites, there's a flash, there's a bang, there's a column of smoke, and disco records go sailing 200 feet into the air before raining back down on the oh, field. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. So the crate catches on fire, which nobody seems to have anticipated and nobody puts out. Uh There's a massive cheer. Like, if you're looking at video of this, you can just see people are losing it. Jeez. And then the fans in the stand start throwing beer bottles. Yep. Um, They start chucking disco records, and they also start throwing cherry bombs onto the field. Yeah. Outside, security has their hands full with the thousands of fans who couldn't get in and are now starting fistfights and bonfires at the entrance gates because they have missed the explosion and they are mad. Uh-huh. So inside, Steve Dahl and the radio station model jump back into his Jeep. They drive off the field. Now, he's headed back up to the press box yeah. to watch the second game. That's not what ends up happening. No. So the crowd in the stands reaches this weird kind of critical mass after the smoke clears and the last of the records fall back onto the field and Steve Dahl's Jeep disappears. It seems almost like the explosion itself isn't enough for people. Yeah. Like to at least part of the crowd, they're sitting in the bleachers thinking like, well, that was a good start. And then at least one person goes, hold my beer and jumps onto the field. (laughs) Oh yeah. No. So if you watch the video at first, it's just one kid, you know, 
jumps down onto the field and, and makes a dash for second base. And then when he gets there, he pulls it up and waves it on the at the stands. Mm-hmm. And people just lose their minds. So within seconds, thousands of fans are pouring onto the field. It's full-blown chaos. Yep. The crate is still on fire. Yep. Uh, people are lighting their anti-disco banners and making bonfires. Yep. Somebody digs up home plate and runs off with it. Yep. Uh, people are pulling up the grass with their bare hands. They're smashing beer bottles. They're flinging around records and pieces of records. They knock over the batting cage and set it on fire. I didn't even know you could do that. Uh, yeah, that's a new one on me. So the event was intended as this fun little promotion, but it is clearly a riot. Even from the pictures, there's just a lot of rage. Yeah, it's weird. It's it's It turns from like this sort of almost jokey thing into very angry very quickly. It really taps into something. Yeah. Um, so, again, I'm going to give you another estimate. Seven to 10,000 people come running onto the field. They're overwhelmingly young, male, white. It was completely out of control. Yeah. It's a riot. It's, it's a riot. It's a yeah. full-on riot. It was a riot. So, in the press box, Steve Dahl is watching this on monitors as management and sportscasters and even the organ player are trying to calm down the crowd. Yep. In the documentary that I watched, this is the only point where he sounds genuinely surprised. So he talks about not recognizing the scene on the monitors, like he wasn't sure what he was looking at, because this all happened between the time when he drove off the field and and then before he got up to the press box. Yeah. And I do feel like this is the first time he's confronted by like this kind of energy, which he had been tapping into. Sure. And this maybe explains why he's never apologized or looked at the event from any other perspective. Okay. So his perspective is that this is a joke that some people might have taken too seriously. Uh, So he offers to talk to the crowd over the PA system to try and get them off the field. And he offers that to Bill Vec and Bill Vec pats him on the shoulder and says, no, thanks, son. You've done enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's the quote. The riot goes on for over half an hour until two dozen uniformed Chicago police show up. They come riding onto the field on horseback in riot gear, and in about a minute, the field is clear, and the team managers are able to inspect the damage. Yeah, it was seconds. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, at this time, okay, so this is occurring at a time when the Chicago police have a lot of practice in getting riots under control. (laughs) 1979, everybody. 1979. (laughs) And the people on the field, I think as soon as they saw them, they were like, oh, party's over. Yep. Uh, so the actual explosion, which was the White Sox's fault, yes. has started a fire, and it has left a two-and-a-half-foot-deep crater in the outfield. Yeah. The rest of the damage, which is <laughs> rock and roll's fault, uh, includes missing <laughs> sod, beer bottles broken in the, gla- in the grass, yep. little holes in the sod from cherry bombs, and, of course, broken and melted vinyl shards all over the place. Again, when records break, they are sharp. Yeah. And, and you don't have your bases anymore. No, you, you don't have your bases. bases. And also the, the lines have been kicked apart. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so it takes the managers about five minutes to declare the field unplayable and yeah. forfeit the game to the, the second game to well, the Detroit right. Tigers. Actually, I need to issue a small correction here. <clears throat> the ruling stated that the White Sox had failed to provide acceptable playing conditions, which is one of the, one of the reasons under which a game may be forfeited. This was the last forfeiture in major Mm -hmm. league baseball yep 
and it's only happened four times and yeah. it hasn't happened since. <laughs> yep. Don't blow up stuff in, in center field between a double header, folks. Now we know that promotions cannot involve explosions. Because you will lose your baseball game. That's the real victim here. And that's the real problem. <laughs> All right. By a miracle, nobody is seriously hurt during disco demolition. I, night. I just kept waiting for like a body count on this one. Like somebody takes a beer bottle to the head. Somebody takes a record to the neck. None of it. Or even just the crowd. Yeah, just crushing. You know? Absolutely. It's way too many people. It's in an yep. old structure. Yep. And the exits, like security is not present. Security is uh, The able. exits are not functioning. Yeah, exactly. It is it is a miracle nobody's hurt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a bunch of people are rounded up and arrested for assault yes. and indecency. But considering the size of the crowd, the lack of crowd control, the amount of sharp things and yep. fireworks in the crowd... And, you know, I'm just going to say the overall bad vibes. Yeah, bad vibes. Definitely bad is, vibes. Yeah, it's just very lucky that nobody is seriously hurt or killed. Yeah. The field is repaired in time for another game the next day. Yeah. And the Chicago White Sox limp to the end of a poor season. Grounds crews are very, 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 very good at their jobs. I hope they got a lot of overtime I, and a good Man, bonus. I hope they did too. <laughs> because, yeah. Uh, Steve Dahl continues his disco sucks shtick for another yep. couple of years. Um, eventually he drops it when nobody is making disco music anymore. Yeah. Later he becomes kind of like a, I want to say an average talk radio host. I don't listen to a ton of talk radio, so I can't yeah. judge accurately where his show is. Sure. I, he pulls a couple of really tasteless, but nowhere near as impactful stunts. Yeah. Um, over the rest of his career, yeah. he becomes an early adopter of podcasting in 2008. Ah, good for him. Let's say, let's also say, I mean, the man has has had a lot of time to 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 grow and and expand as a human being. You know, like this was very much he... tapping into something when he was in his early 20s, and now that he's in right. his what 50s, 60s, I mean, I I would be shocked if he were still the same kind of person. No, but we're going to put an asterisk in that because I yeah. want to come back to that once we talk about some modern understandings of Disco Demolition Night. Disco Demolition Night is sometimes described as the death of disco. I yeah. don't think it causes yeah. uh, Symptom, the death not of disco. The disease. Yeah. It's just kind of correlated to, I don't know, you can only churn out so many disco hits That's before true. people start wanting something else. Yeah. Any any musical genre will run its you know any musical subgenre will run its course eventually. That's the reason why sure. you know uh, rap rock isn't a huge force in music in the modern day. <laughs> Not the way it should be for sure. Uh, crunk is the other crunk, genre yeah, that I really miss. Super super out there right now. That you miss? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's my favorite. And you can't put a record out now uh, that sounds anything like you know Buddy Holly and have that be a big oh. hit. I can't because I don't have the talent, but I'm sure somebody could. Fair enough. Uh, disco is too fun to go away completely, though. Yeah. Right? It just so, it just evolves. It evolves into yeah. like EDM and dance music. That's it. It evolves really quickly into club music, boogie-woogie, house music, yeah. all the good stuff in the 80s. There's something called New Disco, which is still with us today. Well, and Euro Disco, which never went away. And That's the Euro thing. Euro Disco, is, thank you. This is an American thing. The, the the people of the United States of America turned against disco. The Europeans, I mean, 
ABBA is and, still the biggest like band of all time for a reason. <laughs> they deserve it more than we do. I, you know, we're just not allowed to have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things. <sighs> not that there isn't absolute garbage disco out there. Like all music genres will have absolute garbage representation, but. To frame an entire genre as garbage just because you don't like the style of it is just like, I, just don't listen to it. Nobody's nobody's holding you down and forcing you to. Uh, speaking of holding people down and forcing them to listen to stuff, I just want to give a quick PSA sidebar for our okay. American listeners. This year's Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> will be streaming live on Peacock and YouTube. That's May 10th, 12th, and 14th. We have no affiliation with Eurovision or any of the broadcasters. I just want you to watch and have a good time. And I mean, vote yeah. for Norway if you feel so inclined. I think it's Norway's <laughs> year. Is Norway is Norway doing something cool this year? It's my daughter's favorite. She okay. picked last year's winners. Like She listened to all the songs once, and she was like, Italy's going to win. That's the best song. And she okay. was correct. It well, did. All right. So, so what this I'm... year, she likes Norway, so put your money on Norway. Okay. All right. Uh, back to 1979. Yeah. Yep. It would be a little bit misleading to leave the story of Disco Demolition Night here uh, without some of the very valid criticism that has informed modern understanding of the event. Sure. Let's get into that. Even by the end of 1979, music critics were kind of like, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, Dave Marsh wrote about the event in Rolling yes. Stone magazine, quote... Yep. White males, 18 to 34, are the most likely to see disco as the product of homosexuals, blacks, and Latins, and therefore they're most likely to respond to appeals to wipe out such threats to their security, end quote. I think that really hits at the core of why people are sometimes a little uncomfortable. Sure. About this event specifically, but also about that particular time in the music industry. Okay. Okay. Journalist Mark Anderson, who was at Disco Demolition Night as a child, I think he was there with his Cub Scout troop. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. He also saw the event's violence as like a reactionary event springing sure. from the 70s anxieties of white, middle-class Chicagoans like his parents. Quote, I have very vivid memories of the fears my parents and others had back then that blacks would one day take over every white neighborhood in existence. It was part of the everyday conversation back then discussed as both fear and surprise that a group of undesirables could threaten what was seen as the birthright of racial intolerance and isolation. Even though we didn't say it in those terms, we certainly didn't want black folks to take over our rightful place at the top of youth culture, as expressed in radio airtime, TV specials, and concerts in places like Comiskey Park, end quote. Wow. That is really uncomfortable to read. I would imagine, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's really uncomfortable to hear. I can't imagine reading it. I can't imagine being in the position where you're being told that this is the right thing to be thinking. Yikes. Right. I will say that it takes a lot of self-recognition. It takes a lot of self-awareness. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I think that's a really valuable perspective that often gets lost. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have one last quote for you for additional sure. context. We have Darlene Jackson, who watched Disco Demolition Night on TV with her mm -hmm. family at age 10. She remembers when the riot started. Okay, so it wasn't fully televised. Right. They yeah, televised like the first the like 30 seconds and yep. then they like did that thing where they <laughs> played music over yep. 
Sorry, folks, we'll be back in a moment. We're having some slight transmission issues. Uh, watching this, like, from TV must have been just insane. Surreal. Yeah. Uh, Darlene Jackson was a huge disco fan when she was watching this. So just imagine how this event looked to a young African-American girl who loved disco, watching the explosion and the riot and unfold just in the middle of your evening baseball game. Yeah. Uh, she went on to become a DJ in Chicago, and I think her perspective and understanding of Disco Demolition Night is really important to the story. Yeah, absolutely. Quote, I think part of what Steve tapped into was a little bit of this unspoken transcript that this is the music of black people, of gay people, of Latino people, and we should not accept it. We should not try to be a part of it. And so that's why people perceive it as homophobic and a racist event. That unspoken transcript, a lot of us heard it. End quote. I think that last sentence is extremely powerful. Uh, Going back to Steve Dahl, he has never apologized or, okay, he's never apologized for his role in Disco Demolition Night, yeah. which really put him on a, on the map as a talk radio host. Yeah, absolutely. And grew his fan base exponentially. It's really the reason why people know his name. Sure. Like nothing he ever does comes close to this level of, I don't know, notoriety? Sure. <laughs> Famousness? Sure. As late as 2016, he co-wrote a book about the event and the rock scene in Chicago called Disco Demolition, The Night Disco Died. Yeah. It's not really about disco so much as it is about his love for the rock scene in 1970s Chicago. Sure. Uh, but the chapters that speak to the event talk about it as a like a fun, edgy prank that got a little out of hand. Yeah. Uh, following the book's release, he did an interview with WBUR when they asked how he felt about the allegations of racism and homophobia that are now understood to be major forces in the riot. Here's what he said. Yeah. Okay. Quote, I understand now that there was an underground gay disco scene and all, but we were unaware of all that. You know, we were unaware of the origins of it. We basically joined the timeline at Saturday Night Fever and Studio 54. And that was 40 years ago. Things were just different. I don't believe I'm a racist and I am not a homophobe. And you know, it's fairly Kafka-esque in that I don't know exactly how to explain my way out of something that I didn't think in the first place. You know, I understand it. And I'm sorry if that's caused you harm or has hurt you in some way. End quote. Um, But obviously we wouldn't be telling the story fully if we're only looking through that lens. And for what it's worth, I don't think he had malicious intent. It doesn't come across that way, no. Personally, pretty angry about losing his job. I think he also, like, found something he was good at talking about. Exactly, yep. And really did that to the max. It's like the, uh, the early YouTubers who got very famous by making fun of the Star Wars movies. It's like oh, is that, that a thing? That's absolutely a thing. And, and it's like, if that's your wheelhouse, you've got to really buy into that and keep doing it. And you can't ever, like, come away from it and, and just be like, well, you know, that's not my cup of tea. But uh, if other people like them, that's not that bad. And, that's so interesting. And nobody's, nobody's ready to do that at 24. Come on. You're, you're, no, you're I mean. Not <laughs> fully, you're, you're not done yet at 24. You're still cooking. <laughs> Uh, finally, one last thing. I just wanted to mention that the White Sox commemorated the 40th anniversary of Disco Demolition Night with a special game and a 10,000 t-shirt giveaway. Okay. 
there was a pretty predictable backlash against this commemoration. Yeah. Uh, but the event itself went off without a hitch. Steve Dull threw out the per- first pitch, oh, thankfully did he? not in his army outfit. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, and Chicago beat the New York Yankees four to five. Good for in them. In front of 22,000 baseball fans. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's that's fine. a good that's a good crowd. Uh, no records were thrown. Nobody brought a disco sex banner, and this time there was no riot. That's a win, you know. That's a win all the way around. It's a win for everyone. Uh, and that's the story of Disco Demolition Night. The end. Well, that's unless you had something else you wanted to say. I, I, I need to issue my own correction, actually. I misspoke earlier yeah, in the episode. Uh, that was the last American League game to be forfeited. There was a later National League game that was forfeited. The, uh, the Dodgers forfeited a game. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly. And we know you do. <laughs> why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be? Uh, for our next disaster, um, I know how much you like ghost ships. I love ghost ships. And I have something of a double whammy for this next one. Two ghost ships? Two ghost ships. <laughs> or one huge one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. What is it? That would have been great. Yeah. The, yeah. It, it would have been, uh, it, well... Yeah, just just one ghost ship that broke in half and both halves floated across the... I have two ghost ships that I want to share with you. Um, Both of them, both of them disappeared in the Arctic. Uh, One of them was found in almost perfect condition under the water. And the Uh other has been sailing around... Uh, since 1931, and may actually still be out there, although she hasn't been seen in over 50 years. So oh, that's creepy. On the next episode of Relative Disasters, we're going to talk about the two Arctic ghost ships, the SS Bechimo and the HMS Terror. Nice. Why did they name a ship the Terror? Because uh, it could go fast. Really? <laughs> That's my I guess. I can't tell you how excited I am for this one. This sounds amazing. All I righty. Cannot wait.